Hello, everybody. This is Shift M Podcast, our next episode. And we have uh, the special guest. It's Mike Clayton, who is uh, an author, a speaker, a book writer, a blogger, a consultant. Uh, there are actually about 14 books on your website, I found. This is the exact amount of books you published, Mike? Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's amazing. Can you present yourself, say a few words about yourself? Okay, so uh, I'm basically, I'm a project manager who trains people and speaks and writes about largely project management, but a range of other skills that professionals and managers need to be successful in their careers. And uh, so a lot of my live training has always been in the UK, but in the last couple of years, I've been developing a lot of online video-based training, taking what I do live and putting it online, making it available for an international audience. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. And the subject we decided to, to choose for this podcast is Zen Project Management or Zen Management, which is, we found it on your blog. That's how we decided to, uh, you know, to speak about exactly that. Mm. And can you say a few words, what do you mean by Zen Management for our listeners? What is well, I- I was asked to write an article. I think you probably found it on someone else's blog when I was commissioned to write an article. Um, And I was asked to write an article about project management that took a look from a a slightly different perspective. And I've always, since I was a kid, been interested in the idea of uh, Zen and Eastern kind of philosophies. And it struck me that it applies very nicely to project management because what Zen is fundamentally about is a high level of awareness of what's going on in your world and seeing the world for, for what it is. And also it's about self-control and being able to be in command of your own choices, your own decisions, your own mental states. And those are two very powerful and useful skills for project managers. So the Zen management is for project managers, not for the team being managed. Well, no, it is. Uh, I mean, it's for everyone. I wrote it from the. I wrote the article I wrote was from the point of view of uh, project managers, but I think it applies to anybody who is trying to be professional and effective in a difficult professional or indeed social role. And what is the difference? Let's say I'm a traditional project manager and you are the Zen project manager. How different we are in a day work? What do we do differently? Well, I think what, uh, what I'm trying to do with the idea of Zen project management is focus on really having a, a precise and accurate understanding of what's going on around me. So I'm going to be open to all the information that's there and I'm going to try and avoid making judgments about it until I've properly understood it. So it's recognizing that life is really simple and that even the simplest things often have a layer of complexity that we need to understand to make wise and informed decisions. So that's the first thing. And the second I think is about being able to be relaxed and calm in the face of a complex and challenging environment, whether that's a workplace environment as a project or uh, as a a manager or as a professional, or whether if I'm working in a a social sphere, perhaps I might be 
um, involved in leading a sports club or uh, a youth club. All of these environments are, can put us under a lot of pressure and the ability to stay calm, to stay in control of your choices is what I mean by Zen management. So it seems that the, the Zen manager uh, is supposed to be way less reactive than the traditional project manager. It seems to me that from what you said, so I have to be, if I'm going to be the Zen manager, I'm supposed to be more calm and chilling and uh, less, I, ha I should give less, ba less back to my team to what they're doing and more observe what they're doing. Am I right? Exactly. I think it's about, it's not so much about being less reactive. It's about being more measured in the reactions that you make. A lot of the environments where my clients work are, requirement, are, are environments where you can't always predict what's going to happen. Change is going to happen and you can't control that. But what you can do is control how you react to it instead of a sudden knee-jerk reaction. If, if, something, if you make a big mistake, if something goes horribly wrong, human beings have a very predictable set of standard reactions. We either freeze and we don't know what to do and we can't, can't react, or we act scared and we try to make the thing go away quickly, or we get angry and aggressive. What I'm trying to advocate is that we have a, an alternative, which is to say, let's pause, let's understand exactly what's happened, and then working with our team, determine the best course of action, trying to keep people from reacting in an uncontrolled way. And why? Okay, that's, that sounds reasonable to me. What you're saying is sounds more like a common sense yeah. versus something, you know, some, some unique knowledge. But the question is why... All project managers are not doing that. What's the root cause of that problem? I think a lot of good project managers are. Uh, the challenge, I think, is for younger, less experienced project managers who perhaps have their first experience on a nice, easy project and they think things are going to go their way because they planned carefully. Um, and then something, suddenly something doesn't go their way. What often happens is that this isn't just a sudden out of the blue thing, it's, it's the culmination of a series of increasingly stressful events. When we are under stress, we find it harder to control our reactions. And project management is a good example of a stressful uh, occupation because we are trying to control a lot of new stuff, a lot of changes. We've got a lot of different people involved with different perspectives. Uh, some of whom will not agree with us, uh, and yet we have to take a, uh, take account of their, their point of view. So all of that can build up stress levels in us, which means that when something goes wrong or when something unexpected happens, we're likely to react in a, a sudden and possibly uncontrolled manner. And so the good project managers, the ones who've learned to do this, I, I, don't, I don't for a minute say that these ideas aren't original uh, or that people aren't doing them. Uh, what I'm trying to do is bring them to the awareness of the people who aren't uh, to say, you can do this too. There, there are, there are uh, solutions to that kind of overreaction or, or possibly underreaction. Rather like small creatures, if you threaten them, they will curl up into a little ball and hope, 
hope that nothing hurts them. And we do that as well as human beings sometimes. Can you, can you give me a practical example from your real life experience where people were, project managers, I mean, were reacting in a, in a non-Zen way? Yeah. And I'll give you an example from my own career um, because, you know, I, I struggled with this. There was a time I was working uh, away from home. I, I live in the UK. I was working in the Netherlands. So I was commuting weekly, uh, flying out to the Netherlands. Uh, it was a, a demanding project that I was leading. It required most of us to be working from... 7am through to often midnight oh. and we were getting tireder and more and more stressed and I certainly was and there was a point where a client told me that they were not happy with what I was doing uh, they thought that the project wasn't under as much control as it should be we had objectively uh, we'd failed to deliver something that was important to them uh, and I would certainly say that a, a chunk of the faults was mine. So, but instead of listening to what they said and thinking about it and then coming back to them with a reasoned response, my first response was to uh, get angry and to get upset that they were blaming me and to try to find excuses and, uh, and, and then for, I would say, about... 12 hours I wasn't really any use to anybody I was kind of miserable moping trying to find excuses rather than trying to understand and solve the problem and that was a culmination of being overtired uh, overstressed and not having the resources to understand how I was going to react and, and therefore to to moderate my reaction luckily I was able to pull myself out of it Otherwise, my career might have taken a different turn, I suppose. And what, what do you do? How do you resolve after the, those 12 hours? Well, it was, it was about, a, you know, a, I think this probably happened early one you know, morning and it was towards the end of the day when I was probably still quite tired, but I started to realize that I had wasted the day and I needed to, needed to regroup. And what I actually did was went for a walk. It was quite late in the evening, but I went for a walk, got some fresh air and thought things through. But the important thing for me is not how I resolved it then, which was really just a matter of luck. It was the decision I made after that, that this should never happen again. And so I started to learn about um, stress and how we respond to stress and what we can do as human beings to make ourselves more resilient to stress um, and that kind of has given me a set of re uh, resources that I can then teach other people um, and the idea of awareness of what's going on and self-control are kind of two big important aspects of that. Well that sounds like a good advice but I think according to your story what I'm taking from it is that I think it will repeat exactly the same way if you would be again that tired and you would be again blamed for someone else's mistakes and you would again need to give some excuses. I think you would do exactly the same out of your just emotions and stress, don't you think? I think two things I would say. Firstly, if I were that stressed, then yes, 
uh, it could well happen the same way. So the first important thing is to find ways to, that we can avoid allowing ourselves to get into that level of stress without realizing what's going on. And the second thing is that I have developed a simple five-step routine. So as soon as I recognize that I am being pushed uh, to uh, uh, give an answer or to respond to something where I don't feel ready, I can kind of activate that five-step process, which I, I teach people uh, and they really, really value. Um, and so that helps to diffuse the situation. I call it the scope uh, process and it, it really just enables me to uh, re-engage the thinking part of my brain uh, and if you like put to one side the emotional response so it's a two-pronged thing it's one is not as easily getting stressed uh, and the second is having a tool to uh, to handle those situations even if I am stressed and what are those five steps? Can you tell us? Okay. Well, I call it the scope method. Um, and the first step is to stop, to pause, to take a step back and think about the importance of not reacting. And the second is to clarify. So this is uh, the awareness bit. So instead of hearing what you've heard and then responding to it, become curious and ask more questions. And that has two very important effects. One is the process of asking questions slows things down. Um, and the second is it allows you to gather more information because what I've found is when we're under stress, we latch on very quickly to the first interpretation that we make of what's been said. And if someone is not speaking super clearly, uh, and we're not responding really clearly as well, we can easily just get the wrong end of the stick to completely misinterpret what's required. So we stop and then we clarify. We ask questions. We try to really understand the situation. The next part of the scope process, O, stands for options. Deliberately try to identify more than one option for how you can respond. Uh, and I always recommend that three is the ideal because if you've only got two options, it's this or it's that, and it becomes a polarized uh, kind of mental dialogue. So come up with some different options for how you can respond and then evaluate which of those options uh, objectively is going to give you the best chance of regaining control of the situation and putting things right. And, uh, and again, when we're stressed, the emotional part of our brain tries to take control by deliberately forcing ourselves to think through options and to evaluate those options. We are forcing our thinking rational part of our brain to regain control of the process. Then, once we've identified our options and chosen which one or which combination of options is going to be, uh, in our judgment, the best for the situation, we can then P for proceed um, and, and get on with it. But the mistake a lot of people make is they come up with a choice of what they're going to do, and then they do it and keep going regardless, because I've decided what's best. What we need to do also is to E for evaluate 
what's going on. Constantly observe the impact of the choices we've made. Because if we made the wrong choice, the sooner we spot that and are able to say, oh, hang on, that's not working. I need to rethink this. Then again, the less stressful we'll find it and the more control we'll have. So SCOPE stands for Stop, Clarify, Options, Proceed and Evaluate. Is it your own invention, the name and everything? Yeah. Well, it sounds amazing for me. <laughs> well, um, honestly, I'm going to use it in my life. That, that sounds really, yeah, it's really like easy to remember and, uh, and, it's, and it's really interesting. And it's not applicable only to project management, I think. Oh, no, no. I mean, this, anyone who has to live in the world and deal with anything that they sometimes find challenging is going to find that useful uh, and it's one of the one of the tools I train people in project management in uh, time management in all sorts of different areas just general management and leadership skills because it is so powerful as a way of just if you know that you can just trigger it and just regain that sense of I'm in control of the situation I have choices and I might not make the right one but at least I understand what I'm doing and I, I can uh, change direction if I need to. And what is the most difficult part out of this five steps for people usually? What do you think? Where do they fail mostly? I would say the stop bit. Stop. Because when you're under pressure, remembering that you've got that tool, remembering that process and remembering to... So, and, and I don't think this isn't unique to me. Um, lots of... Um, kind of stress management uh, trainers and people will say, I should just take a deep breath, a few deep breaths because physiologically that will calm you down. It will just, when we take some deep breaths, that sends signals to our brain to calm us down. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that most of us are getting into trouble because we don't stop and then the rest of this four steps, they just don't make sense because we fail at the first one, right? Yeah, if we don't stop, then we, haven't, we, don't, we don't think to clarify. We just shout or we get upset or we stomp off miserable. Um, and, and that's, I, I have this kind of little, I mean, this isn't science, it's just my way of thinking about it. But I think like deep inside of our brain is, is, is still a two-year-old. <laughs> and when we are not feeling at our best and we're under pressure and we're stressed, that two-year-old has more and more control over our behaviours. And so because we therefore have less and less adult control of our behaviours, I've tried to boil it down to something very simple. Just stop. <laughs> Just tell that two-year-old to sit in the corner while daddy or mummy thinks through what to do and that's exactly what it's like I don't know if you've got children but that's exactly what it's like when something happens at home and you've got a small child um, you just need some time as a grown-up to think about how to handle it and sometimes you just need to tell your small child please just be quiet for a moment so that I can think and that's what you're trying to do to the two-year-old inside your brain that's true. You know, you're saying stress many times we use that word, but uh, every time it sounds like something negative. But I read some, a lot of research actually about 
mm. uh, stress, and they say that there are two, two types of stress. One is the stress which we feel uh, occasionally and which actually boosts our performance and you know, uh, uh, moves us forward and helps us to get more uh, organized, motivated for a short period of time. And then yes. there, is, there is de-stress, they call it, which yeah. stays longer with us, like for days, weeks, or months. And this is the type of stress that kills us and, just, and, 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 they, and makes something uh, harmful to our bodies and, and our brains. That's absolutely right. If you, um, if you think about human beings thousands of years ago, our ancestors, before we evolved into the human beings we are today, um, they, would have, they would have had... A, a stressful life in the sense that they're out trying to gather food for the family and then uh, a giant bear uh, or a lion appears and of course that triggers the stress response and so um, their body shuts down everything it doesn't need to survive so you don't need to be um, mending that scratch you got the other day or those chapped lips you don't need to be hungry in fact quite often your whole digestive system shuts down and, and, and empties everything out uh, ready to run away um, and so we you know things like eating sex all of that stuff is of no interest whatsoever the only thing that matters is plenty of blood uh, flowing to the muscles that will allow you to run away as fast as possible or fight for your life and that's the equivalent of um, I've got to go on stage this afternoon and present to a thousand people and I've got butterflies in my stomach. I feel excited and scared and that's what drives a really good performance. But if you get continuous stress, so, so our ancestor will have run away from that lion. One of two things will have happened. Either the lion will have eaten them and that's fine. <laughs> no more ancestors. <laughs> Um, or they get away and then they get back to the hut or the cave and it's and they're breathing heavily and they relax and gradually all that stress subsides but for a lot of people in modern life we get home from work and we're worried about the things we haven't done at work we're worried about our families we're worried about will we be able to have a good holiday and so that stress doesn't dissipate through the evening and then we go back to work the next day and it builds up again and so the stress never dissipates and therefore our body starts to get into a situation where it never properly starts looking after itself so we start getting colds and flu and cuts that we've got take a long time to heal our appetite is disrupted so that we either overeat or we don't eat properly or we eat junk food um, uh, you know, our sexual function doesn't work properly, and so our so all that stress becomes very destructive. And fundamentally, stress comes down to not feeling in control. If there's a lion appears in your office, you're not going to feel in control. You're going to get massively stressed. If your whole work life is one where you don't feel properly in control, then gradually that stress will get to you, and that long-term stress will drive uh, damaging responses both to your physical body and to your mental state as well. So you're quite right. There's, there's your long-term damaging stress and your short-term exciting stress. And, and Americans always have a good phrase, but they talk about, in sports, they talk about uh, clutch and choke as the two opposites of the stress response. So clutch is where... 
you have a very difficult uh, and important sporting feat to do. Maybe you're a golfer and it's the last hole, or you're a basketball player and it's the last, and you've got to score that last basket, or a football player and you've got to hit that and hit that goal. And clutch is where all of that combined with your skill and your experience and your training means that you perform immaculately. Choke is where you let the psychology and the stress get to your brain and that stops you from performing properly because it gets in the way of you accessing all that training and experience. And so put into those terms what I'm trying to do is give people resources to go from choking when something bad happens to that kind of clutch performance. I'm under a lot of pressure and now I'm going to uh, know exactly how to respond to that pressure. I've got resources and therefore I will be successful. And why do you think people are uh, moving from this clutch to choke? Uh, They do it right by themselves. So they, they have this uh, temporary, necessary, needed stress, positive stress. And then all of a sudden, we understand that now we are in the de-stress situation. Mm. So, so what happens between that and, and how to prevent that? That's my question. Yeah, well, the, the sports psychologists spend a, more time, I think, working on the mental game than they do on the physical game. I mean, you, you, you take you know, the best sports teams, the best sports players around the world, and technically, they're all as good as each other. They're all, you know, phenomenal athletes. What's going on in the brain is the important thing. And I think the the two things that we can work on to allow us to perform at our best, to harness all that training and experience are firstly to reduce the the amount that the stress gets to us in the first place. And I think the, the things we can do with that are... Uh, making sure we get plenty of sleep, making sure we prioritize our family and our personal relationships because people keep us sane. We're making sure we make sensible choices about eating. I don't know about where you are. There's a lot of people in the UK who eat really bad food and drink far too much alcohol and, and, and they're, they're poisoning their bodies and reducing their ability to cope with stress. Um, and also getting the right amount of physical activity whether you choose to dance or to do gardening or to do sport or whatever if you attend to your relaxation and you attend to your exercise and you attend to your food and you attend to your relationships that will keep you um, on an even keel and and reduce the stress and then the second thing um, whether it's the sports arena or whether it's the professional Uh, managerial project management world the second thing is to have a mechanism to keep focused on what matters and for me that mechanism is the scope process it keeps us aware keeps us um, in control of our responses but it sounds that your scope process is um, focused on decreasing the level of stress when something happens something unexpectedly something which we didn't ex- expect it happens then we need to stop we need to calm down we need to somehow lower the amount of stress coming into our brains and our body and then make the decisions but as we agreed before our ancestors when they were in the wild they needed that stress so they needed to be stressed they needed all the blood you know coming into their brains and body everything so maybe right now we as project managers 
also need that. Maybe we don't need to stop the stress. We need to welcome the stress and say, it's okay when something unexpected happens. It's okay that I'm getting nervous. It's okay that I'm getting angry because like my ancestors, I need to fight with the, with mm -hmm. the lion. So maybe well, let's not okay. stop. Let's, <laughs> what do you think? It's, it's okay to be nervous and it's okay to recognize that you're under pressure. But if all of that results in you not having control over your choices because you default to getting angry and shouting or worse, then that isn't going to make the situation better because we have bodies that are designed to cope well with lions and tigers. But actually modern work isn't like that. If your boss starts shouting at you, the right response is not to shout back at your boss and it certainly isn't to hit your boss. Um, and yet that's kind of what you want to do um, when you're angry. So um, yes, we need to accept that we will get stressed and a little bit of stress isn't damaging in itself. It becomes damaging immediately. It limits our choices. If you were to sit there and say, well, I've got three choices and one of them is to hit my boss and I know that could get me into trouble, but I'm prepared to, to get into trouble. Then, okay, I, I might not agree that's the right choice for you. But if you've made that right choice and you're prepared to um, take the consequences, well, then, uh, then you have made a choice despite the stress. If the stress is making the choices for you, then you're going to find yourself getting into all sorts of trouble with no control over that and, and that can never be good so it sounds like we're talking about self-awareness in some sort mm, absolutely right we are uh, i say awareness and self-control they're the two kind of poles that really drove that sense that the zen metaphor was a good one mm -hmm. you know i totally agree with that but let me be um let me play the devil's advocate now and uh and tell you that I read some books and research and I, according to my experience as well, people don't really enjoy working with very stable, calm and self-aware people. They prefer to deal with you if you are emotional, if you are, you know, sometimes getting angry, if you react emotionally, if you are, uh, if you, if I shout at you and you shout at me back. So when I shout at you, if I'm your boss, for example, I shout at you and you just stay calm and look at me and say, okay, there are three options. I get more nervous because I can feel that you're stronger than me emotionally. And, yeah. that, and that makes me a little bit, well, it makes me weaker and I don't like to be weaker because I'm your boss. So. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Um, the answer, I think, is, is one word, balance. People don't like being with other people who are too controlled because they don't feel like they're properly human. But also we don't like being with people who are out of control because they scare us. So it's not about going to one extreme or the other. It's about having that flexibility to move around in the middle ground. And uh, and I think you're also right that if your boss is out of control and you're not, they can feel embarrassed that they're not in control and they can resent you for that. Um, but again, if you are in control, you then have the choice to say, 
I, I get it. I understand why you're angry. I understand why you're upset. Um, and I will give you an answer, but I need to think about it. And you can then remove yourself from the danger situation because, as you say, there might be n no way of winning. If you argue with them, that's bad. If you don't argue with them, that's bad. So the best thing to do possibly is to say, um, I get it. I, 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 give me a, give me some time, and and I'll and then I'll get back to you. And that allows allows you to uh, diffuse the situation. But the thing that's most important, I think, is is knowing knowing your boss in this situation. We can conjure up all sorts of different situations and examples, but the real world is populated by people with their own distinct personalities. And as we get to know our colleagues we can figure out what's going to work with one colleague but may not work with another yeah absolutely i i was expecting that answer actually that it depends <laughs> on from the person to person because, you know that. i've been in a few situations and i've been in a few situations in my life when uh, exactly that happened and uh the, the boss was angry because we seriously you know fail at some point and uh, i was trying to become and i got the answer that you just don't care so why are you still calm? Why you why you don't cry? Why you are not screaming? Why you're running not running around the office and you know shouting at everybody because you don't care, obviously. And if so you don't care, yeah, if you don't care, we don't gonna work with you. That's that's kind of you know reaction you may get from the management if you completely stay calm and zen and always you know stop at some point and consider options and do everything you just said. So maybe that that formula that pattern is perfectly all right for your internal psychology for the internal us but maybe for the on the on the external side maybe we need to behave a little bit differently yeah you may be right i mean the other thing that uh, uh, always strikes me with that is you know if you're particularly if you're um, if you're uh, a contractor or a consultant or an advisor um, you, you know actually pointing out look you're not paying me to, for me to care you're paying for me to fix the situation um, and so I'm working on fixing the situation. You, you work on the caring, I'll, I'll fix the situation. And I, I'm not saying make a, a joke out of it, but actually point out that, you know, there are different roles and uh, you're, going to, you're going to take the one uh, that's needed at the moment. But again, with some bosses, they'll go, oh, yeah, okay, just fix it then. Uh, with others, they'll, they, won't take, they won't take that answer. And therefore you hopefully won't have given that particular answer. Um, did you manage to resolve those situations? Well, to be honest, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was playing a little bit uh, a hypocrite. So I was, uh, you know, behaving like I care and saying that, wow, I mean, like pretending to be emotional about that. But inside, I perfectly understood. I was understanding that I need to stay calm because I don't need that stress because it's just, you know, it's just computers, money, servers. We don't need to kill ourselves after all that. We just, yeah. first of all, we need to, like you just said, they, I totally agree with your phrase that uh, they, don't make, they don't pay me to care. They pay me to fix the problem. And the more I care, it doesn't mean that the more, the better I fix the problem. In most cases, it's the other way around. The more emotional I am, the more I care, the less, you know, the less effective I am. It's like the good example with this, you know, people who do surgeries, like surgeons. Mm. They care a lot about their patients. That's why the surgeons are not supposed to do the surgery on their relatives. Yeah. Because they care about that people and that's why they're going to do the less effective surgery, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds from, to me like you actually, in those situations you described, exactly where I 
recommend people are. You thought about the situation and you thought, okay, it might be a little hypocritical, but my boss needs to hear that I care and I need to create some time and space to go and fix the situation. That's exactly the kind of self-awareness and self-control that I'm advocating. I'm not saying you don't ever show emotion, but I am saying it's that if you can make choices about what emotions to show, then you'll probably make a better choice than if you just succumb to whatever emotion happens to be going on in your brain. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking about this metaphor with surgeons, and I'm trying to imagine a surgeon which before the surgery would be asked, like, do you care about that person? And he would just say, I don't care, I'll just do the surgery. That mm. would be not the, you know, nobody would like to go with that surgeon, right? So we want that doctor to care, but at, at the time of surgery, we want the doctor to do the right job instead of crying, for example, about the blood which is lost and about, the, about everything he's doing or she. Right. I, I don't know what, what things are like with you, but certainly in the UK, it, it is kind of widely recognised that surgeons are not the kind of caring end of the medical profession. They are quite calculating and quite kind of precise about things. Um, and it's, it's, as you say, it's, it's the right thing. You can't afford to succumb to emotion when you've got someone's insides in front of you. Um, there are other people who are paid to act in the compassionate way. The nurses, the nurses, perhaps the physicians and junior doctors who are there to look after your mental well-being. But you know, now the question comes to my mind is actually we work in the project management area. We work with people. We don't work with the kidneys and hearts and pieces of, of the body. We work with people around us. So maybe we should be more you know, we should care more and be less uh, calculating people. What do you think? Um, we, should, we need to care about our projects. If, one of the things I often talk about is the importance of meaning because it's back to this two-year-old. If you ask a two-year-old to do something, can they go, why? Um, if you don't have a good answer for them, then they're just going to keep going, there's no point. And it's the same with us as adults. If we don't understand why we're doing something and we don't see what the value of that thing is, if we don't care, then we can do it as a job because we're paid, but we're never going to feel motivated to do it. So I link this to motivation. The more important something is to us, the more we care about it, then the more motivated we are going to be to take responsibility and to make it work. But again, if you care too much about it, then you may not be able to make objective decisions. Let's say I'm delivering a new piece of technology and I, I care too much about the design specification that's been signed off. When the business says we can't afford to deliver that, we need to re-specify the project I've got to be able to be objective enough to gather requirements, to reevaluate the budget and to make some hard choices about letting some of my stakeholders down and uh, producing a product which I may not think is as good as we could have produced. And as project managers, that's a, you know, this kind of situation we find ourselves in a lot. 
And uh, what do we do in those situations? We have to be on which side do we have to be on the calculating side or the side which cares about people and their... I think we need to be more on the calculating side. Uh, we have to gather those requirements and then we apply our sense of caring to making sure that given the information and given the, the new situation, we care enough to take the time to make the right decisions uh, to... Uh, and, and to consult properly and inform properly the people who need to know rather than just say, okay, it's not going to be what I wanted, therefore I don't care anymore. Um, Recognise that projects change and the fundamental thing is it's got to be something we care about. So it, it's back to that word balance again. Mm -hmm. And who do you meet more frequently, more often? People in your, in your practice, in your experience, when you deal with project managers and just managers, uh, these people are in general more calculating or they actually more people people? Uh, that's a, a really good question. I would say in terms of the people people versus calculators, um, the people I train uh, tend to split down the middle. I wouldn't like to say which is the majority. There's no clear majority. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of the people people worry that they won't make good project managers because they can't, they, they're not comfortable with detailed planning and scheduling and budgeting because they're just good at talking to people. And I try to reassure them that 80% of good project management is communicating well with your team members with your colleagues with your bosses and with the stakeholders who are going to be affected and that's the hard part of project management and i think people people those of us who are good at relating to others and enjoy communicating and talking and listening are able to make some of the very best project managers huh interesting so you're saying that the skills which all, all those project management literature is teaching us like budgeting, uh, you know, scheduling, uh, scope control, I don't know, quality control, risk management, all those things, they fit into the 20% of, uh, of the expertise we need to apply to be uh, successful project managers. The rest is 80% is just uh, human skills about how to deal with uh, emotions and people around us. Is it correct? In terms of success and in terms of complexity, yes. Um, it, uh, the... You know, putting together a, a, a project plan, it's relatively straightforward. Yes, there's some, it's not, you know, there are going to be difficult decisions to make and there's a little bit of, I don't know, uh, maths to master. But compared to understanding how people work and, and how to influence people who may not be necessarily um, supportive of your project, that's the difficult bit. Um, and if you were to write a book about all of it and dedicate the right amount of space to each part, I think you'd find that when you start writing about how do you handle conflict between two people, how do you handle persuading someone who's not sure, that would take a lot more writing and a lot more explaining because it's a lot more difficult. Huh. Interesting. And, uh, and people fail here as well more often. I get it. Right? I think a lot of projects fail not because they've been delivered late or they've been delivered over budget. Usually that doesn't matter that much anyway. 
what really triggers the failure often is that somewhere along the line the people who need to be engaged who need to make use of the new processes or products that you've produced aren't interested um, and they don't engage and they don't use the products uh, the technology gets misused uh, because nobody's motivated to use it they moan about how they liked it the way it used to be and everyone go everyone says this is this is a rubbish project it's, 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 and, and yet you've delivered exactly what you promised to deliver um, and possibly bang on schedule and uh, to within your budget so it's in other words it's stakeholder management failures in other words it's stakeholder management failures yes mm -hmm. That's interesting. And, and uh, your recommendation for that, uh, I mean, let's say our listeners are project managers who are going to become more professional. So what's the recommendation for them? How to become uh, more you know, successful in the area of stakeholder management? Right. Well, the first, uh, first recommendation is I would give. In, in here in the UK, we are increasingly no longer talking about stakeholder management. We're talking about stakeholder engagement. Um, because if you try to manage your stakeholders, I think you're going into it with the wrong mindset. And I know we, you know, we both come from, you know, we're speaking English, which is my first language, but not yours. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that, I, I guess for you as well, the, the term management and the term engagement mean very different things. Oh, definitely. Engagement means getting involved with people. It means listening to them as well as talking to them. Management means to me, trying to get them to think the way you think. And that seems rude. <laughs> so yeah. uh, the first thing I'd say is actually start talking to your stakeholders, but also listening to them, getting them involved. Um, the stakeholder engagement process is not difficult. It's figure out who your stakeholders are, understand about them, um, come up with a plan for how you're going to communicate with them and then get on and do it. Um, the tricky thing is to make the time. And again, it's back to that 80% communication thing. I think uh, if you can, as a new or inexperienced project manager, firstly, find in yourself the will to engage with people who possibly don't share your point of view um, and you can allocate enough time to it so that you do it well, that's all there is to it. It's rather like customer service and customer care. The most important thing about customer care is that you actually care. About um, once you get that, everything else becomes straightforward, common sense. You just do what it takes. But if you don't care about the customer, then no amount of procedures and processes are going to give the customer a good experience of working with your organisation. And I, 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 I see you have a book about uh, listening. I mean, speaking so that people can listen. So, yeah. but, but it looks like you're saying that first of all, we need to listen before we can start speaking. Yeah, I mean that that book, How to Speak So People Listen, I think is the only book I have got that has actually been translated into Russian. A magnificent, oh, really? Magnificent volume uh, produced. Um, I'm fairly sure uh, that's the one. Um, but I also have a book called The Influence Agenda, which is all about stakeholder engagement, um, which is possibly my, you know, biggest, most complex book. But I've tried to keep it simple and talk about different techniques, different strategies to influence people, to understand people, to build a communication campaign um, for stakeholders 
in projects and, uh, and, and when you're trying to change things uh, in your organization, in your community or whatever. And do people change? That's my kind of question I've been asking myself and all the, you know, the people I know around who are consultors, consult, they're consulting other projects. And uh, I always wonder, is it possible to change uh, people who are in the project or, I mean, in the area we're talking about right now? So if somebody doesn't like or doesn't know how to listen, according to my experience, that person will never listen. No matter how many books you're going you're gonna, to you know, sell to that person, it's just not... Well, that person doesn't like to listen, so that's it. So do you have, in your experience, do you, have you seen any successful stories of somebody after your consulting or somebody else consulting actually change and start listening and start understanding people better and caring more? Well, you're right. If someone doesn't want to listen and doesn't want to change, you can't change them. You can't force change upon people. Um, you can get someone to change their behaviors temporarily by creating the right motive, motivations um, either reinforce positive behaviors or perhaps uh, uh, challenge negative behaviors. Um, I've been very fortunate in my training and consultancy. The people I've trained have been people who want to change. They want to learn how to do things differently. And therefore, when you say, when you tell them, here's a process that will help you listen more effectively, uh, a lot of them will pay attention to that and they will be willing to give it a go and yeah some of them will give it a go and they won't continue and it won't become a habit and therefore they won't change others will give it a go they'll like what they find they'll keep working at it and it will start to become a habit it's it's rather like any change that we want to make in our lives whether we want to become do a bit more exercise or change our diet drink less coffee if you do it once or twice and then you think well i'll give it a skip for today and uh, and, and maybe then tomorrow i'll come back to it and you know you never this change won't stick if on the other hand you say i am going to do this i'm going to discipline myself to do it as well as i can for the next four weeks after four weeks when we start noticing changes in the results we're getting we say well you know what this isn't so bad i'll keep doing it and eventually if we do it for long enough it just becomes part of our habits and if you can discipline yourself to listen more carefully or to spend more time uh, with people that becomes a habit and that just becomes who you are uh, whilst i think some people do occasionally change massively overnight I think most people change slowly over time and the people who want to change and become more effective and recognize that this particular skill or that particular skill is going to help them. If they commit to it and do it, they will change. The danger I always find with, you know, training courses, I often like to fill my training courses with lots of different um, things and some people come away and they say, that's brilliant. I love that. I want that. I, I'm really like, and I, and I say to them, do not try and do all of this because that's too much change. You will not be able to change all these things. Pick one or two things and practice them for a few weeks. And then when they become habit, then choose another thing to practice and build up because you can't change everything at once. Um, 
But have you seen people after buying your books and reading them, have you seen them uh, emailing you or telling you that something actually changed in their lives, that they started to do it differently, that they are getting more success in managing or engaging uh, stakeholder or stakeholders? Yeah. Uh, uh, to be fair, most of the responses I get are after training, after live training rather than from the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not common that people get in touch with me having read the book. Some do, um, and, and uh, not with the stakeholder book, but certainly with uh, one of my uh, other project management books. I've had someone say, this has just you know, really made a huge difference to my ability to uh, working in community projects, just get things done around the community. And, and uh, that was hugely valuable to them. Um, but after training, quite a lot of people do stay in touch and talk about how the training has given them new opportunities or they've been successful in projects where they wouldn't have believed they would, could be successful. So that's, that's really nice to hear. And, and what do you do on those trainings? Like you really train people to communicate with people? Yeah, um, and I don't get to do the kind of training which I'd love to do, which is spend you know two or three days on some of these topics. But even in you know a short training session, you can get you can, there's something for it. I try to put something for everybody into those sessions. Lots of different ideas, but I know there are going to be a few people who are going to take some of those ideas and they're really going to work at it. And some yeah, they do stay in touch. They uh, in fact, I got an email just the other day in response to one of my regular email newsletters from a chap that I worked with about 10 years ago, possibly 12 years ago, uh, who still remembers the project management training that I ran in his organization uh, and that he, uh, he, still, he still values. So it's nice to know that I can make a small difference to some people's professional lives. And speaking about the newsletter, I, uh, I just want to tell our listeners that it's possible to subscribe. And I'm looking right now at your website. Where do I click in order to subscribe to your... Newsletter? You're looking at the Mike Clayton website? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, there should be... Uh, I haven't got it in front of me. Uh, you see you're doing better than I am. Uh, but there, there will be a box come up when you first come onto the website shortly after you first come on. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a link at the bottom of the website that says email tip sheet. That's, uh, that's the one, yes. Okay. okay. I'm, I'm desperately trying to get that up. But yes, there, there is a, a tip sheet that uh, they can get uh, uh, right in the footer. Sign up here and that will put you on a... Uh, what, 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 is, what are you sending there? Like what kind of information is like monthly? So every three weeks uh, you get uh, a, an email with usually... 10 tips on a particular subject. So, uh, for example, let's have a look at the last few that I've done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me just uh, call those up and I can give you uh, some examples of of some of the ones that I've done. So the most recent one was convinced doubters. If you want to win over skeptics, you will need to get uh, use some of these psychological tools. And it's, I always put how long it takes to read and it's usually around two to three minutes if you're a fluent English uh, reader. Uh, Then there was one quite relevant to what we're talking about called Keep Cool, which was about Mm -hmm. self-control, and one about how to create uh, a buzz around your next project, create some excitement, Um, one about being assertive. So I try to pick topics that people who are working in a business or 
public service or voluntary environment, uh, delivering products and services will find useful to help them in their careers. And I try to keep it easy to read because I know a lot of my audience aren't first, don't have English as a first language. So I try to write it uh, so they'll be able to read it easily. Um, and I hope for everyone in amongst those 10 tips will be one or two where they think, aha, that will be useful for me. I can apply that and it will help. Well, I will subscribe now and see how it goes because I'm, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm always interested in those tips since it's really interesting. I'm in the area of project management. I think it's never enough the knowledge you sometimes, yeah. every time you get something new. Well, those tips aren't exclusively for project managers. I have a, a second website, which uh -huh. uh, actually gets a lot more of my attention at the moment. Which one? What's uh, the called onlinepmcourses.com. Okay. And that uh, website, uh, you can sign up there and get my project management tips each week. Um, and that's much more of a kind of a thought a single thought, coherent thought around uh, project management. Um, I know there are on the um, uh, on the tip sheet uh, on so on the Mike Clayton site. There are occasional things that aren't working uh, as they should. So uh, because I don't give that as much uh, time as it, it needs to to, to maintain it, um, but uh, I'll make sure that the tip sheet sign up works properly um, by the time this goes out. Mm -hmm. sounds cool all right i'll subscribe i actually subscribed already i think well i'm gonna finish filling out the forms so i'll be your subscriber that's for sure right and i followed you on twitter already so i'm gonna put all this information on the footnotes after the the podcast right and all our listeners will be able to become your followers so i have to thank you very much because we're running out of time and that was a really interesting conversation the scope idea amazing i just going to use it from now on till the, I don't know, how long. <laughs> Thanks for inventing it. Great. Well, uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I hope absolutely. You Maybe we'll have you another time sometime later. Great. I'll, uh, I'll drop you a line and uh, we'll stay in touch. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you.